good morning. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, I just want to take a minute and remind you of our update for our plan for reopening. You know, we made the decision to follow the mayor's four-phase plan of reopening because we felt like it was good to do uh, as a church, but we also felt like our medical advisory team was in line with that and were kind of advising us to do that. And because of that plan and on the advice of that medical advisory team, we're sticking with that. And you know that the mayor's done something that's a little bit different. He said that we're still in phase two as of today. So if that changes, uh, he said we're going to do it day by day. So that's, that's kind of the first big change because he's been saying it'll be weeks at a time, but he said we're going to look at it day by day. What that means is, is that if we don't change out of phase two by Monday, we're going to push back another week. And I know that's a disappointment. Listen, it's a disappointment to me. I'm ready to be back with you. But I also want to remind you of a couple of things that we're seeing. There were about 40% of you that said, as soon as you open the church, we're going to be back. And that just fits in with the national trends of churches that are a little bit ahead of us, depending on where they're at in the country. Most pastors that I'm talking to are reporting, they're only having between 30 and 40% of people come back. So we don't have to feel like we have to rush back to do that. Secondly, when we polled you guys, we talked about kind of doing multiple venues on campus where you could watch. And the overwhelming majority of you said, we just don't want to do that. So we're okay to just be patient and stick with this uh, as we go, go a little bit longer. And I know that you're disappointed. Like I said, I'm disappointed too, but it's okay. We're still able to worship. We thank God for the technology that we have to be able to do this. And we're going to see today that we can thank God for being in the sanctuary, which is in here or our house or just the holy place that we designate for the moment. We're going to see that from our scripture days. It's a good thing for us to do that. I want to just take one moment to thank you again for your faithfulness to give, especially as you've been faithful to give uh, again to our global focus partners. Keep doing that, please. They're relying on us. And I've heard from so many of them, even a few of them this week, who have had to make massive changes to what they're doing because other partnerships maybe aren't coming through and they were thanking us for coming through. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for hearing that call even last week as we talked about that. I wanna take just a minute and pray because what we're gonna talk about this morning is gonna be so important for us to see. Uh, I think it's gonna be important for us to have our mind framed around it right. So let's just ask the Lord to be with us as we begin. Father, we thank you for this day. We ask you to bring us back to this place. We ask you to do it quickly, Lord. We ask you to help our medical officials and doctors and our civic leaders and officials just to understand what's going on with this virus. Lord, we pray for the protection of believers again around the world from this. We ask you, God, to move. God, we ask you to move on our behalf. We ask you, Lord, to open our hearts today, to open our ears, to let our minds be free of clutter and distraction that would keep us from hearing from your word. Lord, speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I know this uh, might come as a surprise to some of you, but when I was a kid growing up, I never thought that I'd be standing here today uh, being a pastor. Long before I ever thought God might be calling me to be a pastor, I really had a fascination with all things from the past. You see, I was a kid who loved history. And as a, as a seventh grader at uh, a junior high school taking Tennessee history in Miss Brock's class. We studied all kinds of historical figures, good, bad, because we believed that there were things that we could learn from them as we went forward as a state, as a nation. We thought that that was important. And I'll never forget trying to sell my parents on the idea of how a B average was really a good thing. You know, like a B average in, in junior high is a good thing. And my mom was quick to point out that I did have a B average, but 
I had three A's and three C's, and that's why I had a B average. It wasn't like I, I was just really doing great all across my classes. And she pointed out that I had an A in history and then PE in choir. And then I had a C in math, science, and English. What that means for you today is that I would basically be failing in our school system today that emphasizes only those math and science courses, you know, and, and, and kind of puts everything else on the back burner. You, you just understand where I'm coming from. And I've long believed that history really begins to show patterns to us. I believe that there are patterns that emerge. As you look at history, you begin to see patterns. You can go back to the Bible and you see patterns that come through. But in our own country, and let's just frame this for just a second, our country's really young. But even in our country, there are patterns. Now, this is not the exact same. It's not the exact kind of scientific pattern that you might see in science as you look at DNA. It's not the same thing in concrete terms as you look at mathematical patterns. But history operates so many times on a cycle and there's a pattern to the way that we look at things. And the more that I spend time looking at current events, I've begun to believe I'm seeing a pattern is what I believe I'm seeing. And, and it started for me about seven years ago. I began to talk to my dad about this and other adults who had lived through the 1960s because I really began to see that there was a new pattern emerging in our day and time, in the present day and time, that looks a lot like what many of you lived through in the 1960s in the Vietnam era. Now, I was born a couple of years after Vietnam ended, and so I didn't get to see it, but from talking with people and then having an extended time in college where I had a unique opportunity to really study that time period and just pour over documents and document, uh, you know, uh, documentary footage, you begin to see this pattern emerging. It just looks very similar to what we're seeing today. And I don't want to try to get you to relive all that you lived through that time period if you lived through it. But I think it's important for us to talk about that for just a second because it frames how we think about things today. And there's so many people who don't really understand a lot of that. From 1947 to 1965, my birthplace, Birmingham, Alabama, saw 50 different bombings. 50, giving it the nickname Bombingham. Think about that for a minute. 50 different bombings. 1963 saw the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Medgar Evers, the civil rights leader from Mississippi. 1968 saw a massive escalation of the war in Vietnam as the Tet Offensive took place. And the Vietnam War takes 50,000 people, American soldiers who died. 1968 also saw the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. Demonstrations were commonplace in the street as people were protesting the leadership of the country and the leadership of the institutions that we knew in America. The war, all of those things were coming into question. People were marching for civil rights. Americans didn't trust any of their leaders. And in fact, it was common for you to hear people say, don't trust anyone over 30. Don't trust anyone over 30. At the same time, a new sexual revolution was taking place that was rocking America to its core because it was challenging all of the norms of society and family life that we had known. The summer of free love, 1968, starts to happen and people from that generation are looking for sex, drugs, and rock and roll to add meaning to their lives. And they're the first generation that adds those three things in combination. And those of you who lived through it understood that as those institutions were being challenged, the church was also trying to navigate its way and find a way to respond to those things. And today we're in a similar situation. 
we're experiencing another sexual revolution. And this revolution isn't so much about free love as much as it is about free expression. It demands validation for every kind of sexual behavior imaginable. We're seeing drugs escalate in our country. This time, it's not acid. It's opiates. It's marijuana. And even in America, I want you to hear what the American, the CDC says about this. The CDC says that excessive alcohol consumption cost America, are you ready for this, $249 billion, with a B, dollars every year. We, we have an alcohol problem. We have a sexual revolution taking place. And we're watching our nation come to grips with the callous death of a man that was caught on camera. We've seen that spark another round of protests and even riots in our own city. As people continue to demonstrate, people are calling for change. If you take the pictures from our country today and you compare them to the 1960s, all you'd have to do is Photoshop or swap the hairstyles and the clothes and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. On top of that, we're facing the first pandemic in our country, the United States, in over 100 years. It's impacted weddings, funerals, graduations, churches, concerts, work, family. Our civic leaders are wrestling with this and they're trying to grasp it. They're trying to understand it. The medical community's trying to get their hands around it and it's difficult. So how do we deal with this? As believers, we have a couple of options. As we navigate this, we have a couple of choices that we could adopt for our attitude. We could adopt the attitude of the pessimist that just says that nothing's going to get better. Nothing's going to change. This country is headed for turmoil. It's been in turmoil. It's never going to get better. But I don't think that that's the answer for the believer. The believer has to look at the country and say that God's still on the throne. The believer has to look at the country and say God's kingdom is being established that God is still working. So we could, opt to do, uh, we could adopt the attitude of the disinterested observer. We may not care about any of the issues that are going on because they don't affect us. We're disinterested in a so-called sexual revolution because it doesn't affect us. We're married or, or we've already decided these things for ourselves, so it doesn't matter what the world does. We, we could uh, adopt the attitude of the disinterested observer when it comes to, to someone losing their life. Well, it's not affecting me. We could adopt the attitude of the disinterested observer and say, it doesn't matter what happens downtown. I don't ever go there anyway. That's the wrong attitude as well. Because as believers, we've been invited by God to join him in his work. To change this world. To participate in governmental institutions. To participate in leadership positions where God allows us to shape a culture. We're a voice for the culture. And it's because of this mandate that we have this calling to engage the world every place that it's hurting. The best attitude for a believer to adopt is one of a life lived on mission, finding purpose, living out the call of God in everyday situations. You change the world every day a little bit at a time. And every Christian I know knows this, but every Christian I know struggles with this just like I struggle with it. 
It's a struggle for us to do it. We struggle with it because it appears from our vantage point that history's just repeating itself. It's just one cycle again and again, and it never gets better. We struggle with it because we're cooped up in a house where we can't get away. We're just hearing these voices come in. We've lost purpose and meaning because we have to socially distance, and we can't be at our work. We can't be at our job. We can't be at church. We're struggling with these things. and We struggle with wrapping our minds around a calling when everything feels like it's falling apart. So what do we do? Well, the good news is is we're not the first people to deal with this. That's lesson number one. You are not the first person to deal with this. If you believe you're the only person that's ever dealt with this, you'll just spiral into despair. We are not the first. In fact, the scripture speaks to us about it. Turn to Psalm 73. You may or may not be familiar with this psalm, but I couldn't think of a better passage for us to look at before we were going to come back together. And in fact, Four weeks ago, I felt like God was leading me to this passage for us to speak on it. Long before we were having the tumultuous situation that we were having in our country today or in our city today, sometimes God just gets ahead of where you're going and he prepares you. It's it's, it's almost like a mini miracle when you see it happen. And I so thank God for this because David answers the question, what do we do when God's leading us down a path that's a little bit further than we can see and we're struggling with it? Let's read these first few verses because they're going to give us comfort, they're going to give us hope, and they're going to frame for us a mental picture of how we're to think about the world we're living. Verse 1, Psalm 73, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. David understood two things about himself that we can also say is true about us. David understood the Lord God of Israel was good. He's actually showing his hand to us a little bit before he gets into the problem and how he solves the problem because he starts by saying, God is good. Now, I don't love pithy sayings, and I'm sick of a slogan generation that just thinks they can change the world by saying slogans. It doesn't change anything until you begin to believe it and live it out. Sometimes we as the church say, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, and we don't mean it. That's a waste of our breath. David says God is good. He's reminding himself of this over and over again, and we have to do the same thing. God is good. We know the answer to the problems we're facing and we know how we can get there because we know the one who was and is and is to come and we know that he is good. That's gonna allow us to change how we look at the world. When we see that God is good, we're going to be able to make judgments about what's righteous and unrighteous and we can look at our country, our society, our town and say with certainty God is on the throne and we need to act according to his will. At the same time, Every one of us has felt exactly like David did in verse two. God's good, but my feet almost slipped because my steps almost went astray. They nearly went astray because David's saying, I doubted God's plan. I didn't understand it. I don't know about you, but I always think about it like this. If, if I meet a Christian who tell me that they've never doubted God's plan, I don't believe them. If I meet a Christian who says they've never doubted the promises of God, I don't believe them. That's to me almost like meeting a married couple that says we've never had a fight. Somebody's lying. 
or somebody's been married to a dead person for a very long time. That's the only way that happens. Two people who live together are gonna have a disagreement. They're going to have conflict as they interact with one another. You, you just get friction when that happens in your life. Well, the same thing happens in our faith. Our faith leads us into moments of friction, moments where we don't understand what's going on, moments where it seems like God isn't on the throne and the believer has to wrestle with that. Well, David looked around and said, I'm looking at a world that doesn't make sense because I follow God, I do the right thing, and it just seems like to me the wicked get ahead in everything. They're lawless. They get to, to do what they want. They don't struggle with affliction like I do. Even worse, it seems like they're able to walk proudly all in the city and, and they use violence to cover up who they really are. And then David sunk even lower. As he looked around and watched so-called believers join in the mess. Look at verse 9. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the most high know everything? Basically, he's saying that believers, so-called believers, were listening to their culture over here on the one hand, and they start saying, you know what, that sounds pretty good. We need to just follow the culture. We're just gonna run along with them. And David says, I was sinking in that. He was watching as the culture was saying, there is no God in heaven, and believers were following after that, and you can imagine the despair that he's feeling. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. I don't know what you're doing, God. But as David looked for the secret, he found it. He found it in the struggle, and it's something that every believer has to use as they appropriate their Christian faith towards the culture. Look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless. And aren't you glad it doesn't stop there? Until I entered God's sanctuary. When I tried to understand all of this, it just seemed hopeless to my mind. It seemed like my mind was out of control until I entered God's sanctuary. It may be that right now you feel like things are hopeless. You may feel like COVID is never going to end. I'm so grateful I was talking with Matt Wilson. Matt's a doctor here and he's on our medical advisory team. And one of the things that Matt said early on is, I just have to remind myself that COVID-19 will end one day. Every other pandemic in the world has. You, you, you might feel like it's just hopeless. You might feel like today things are worse than they've ever been in terms of oppression of people because of the color of their skin. Or you might feel hopeless when you see violence and rioting in a city and it seems out of control where solutions seem impossible to find. But for the Christ follower, it comes down to this. If you stare at your problems... They become like an anchor that drags you down as you're trying to navigate the ship through the tumultuous waters. You can't do it. You can't just stare at the problems. When you feel that friction point in your life, you can't just stare at that. You've got to do something about it. And David said, I went to the sanctuary. That's funny, right? Because David didn't build the temple. His son Solomon did. What's he saying? 
He's saying, I went to the holy place. I went to that place where things are set apart for me to worship. And I find great comfort in that right now because you can't be in here with us this morning, but you can be in the sanctuary. You can be in the holy place of God as you listen to this, as you worship, knowing that one day we will be back in what we call the sanctuary. But that's why corporate worship is so important for us. That's why it's important for us to lift our eyes up and dwell on things that are so much bigger than us. That's why it's important for us to come and praise the Lord this morning. That's why it's important for us to come and remind ourselves that he will do it again. We've seen him do it. He'll do it again because when we lift our eyes up, it starts to make sense. We move from hopeless to hopeful. Why? Because we worship. When David worshiped, he lifted up his gaze so he could properly navigate the storms that he was in. This is why it's important for us to do the same. It's why we come together to be reminded of these things. We're reminded of our mission and the invitation that the Lord has given us to join him in this world. It reminds us that it's so very important that we do these things every day. And it reminded me this week of the two greatest commandments. Matthew twenty two thirty five. One of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, Which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. That means everything that was written in the Old Testament depends on those two things. You loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hinges around that. So that first and greatest command, according to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And when you do it, it starts to frame the questions with clearer answers. When you start to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, it really does help you look at those friction points in your life, the friction points in society, and it frames those questions with clearer answers. Right now, our culture is banging the drum as loud as they can of societal ills. But that's not how we have to see this as Christians. It's not a societal ill. When we look at racism, it's not a societal ill. It's societal sin. There's a big difference with that. It's sin. You can't get around it. Racism is sin. And it's not just an American problem. We're so short-sighted if we believe this is just a problem between whites and blacks. It's not just an American problem. It's a European problem. Do you remember that it was a problem in Germany? We fought a war over it. Do you remember that it was a problem in Bosnia and Herzegovina? We fought a war over it, right? Do you understand that in Africa there are tribes that war with one another because of their race fighting with one another to eradicate one another? It's a problem, right? You remember, don't you, why Morgan Jackson said it was so important for us as a Christian church to be about translating the Bible for every tribe, every tongue, every language. Do you remember that? He said that we can't just translate it into the trade languages. Like We can't just say in South America, hey, we've got it covered because we have Spanish. Why? Because people in South America were looking at, at natives, Indians that were there as they were so-called, and saying to them, you're not even a person because God doesn't speak your language. It was a weapon. Racism is a societal sin. In fact, it's a fundamental sin. No matter how you slice it, sin. 
But racism is not the only societal sin that we're witnessing. The Bible tells us when people abuse power, when justice is subverted, when bribes are taken, it's sin. When life is a cheap commodity, it's sin. We're not just pro-life before a baby comes out of the womb. We're pro-life because we believe that God has created all men in his image. We're image bearers of the living God. And when you take a person's life, when you act like you can just throw it away, in any instance, that's a sin. It's demeaning God's greatest creation. It's sin. At the same time, we're witnessing people destroy the property and livelihoods of other people. That's sin. At its heart, that is sin. These are not societal issues because society can't fix any of these issues. These are issues that only come to light under the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't make it better by talking about it. You have to make it better by changing the heart of a person. And the only way to change the heart of a person is to introduce them to the living Lord Jesus Christ and allow the work of grace to operate in our lives and operate in their lives. That's the only way that it works. I'd put it to you like this. If we don't believe the Bible and we don't believe in the living Lord Jesus Christ, then why are we worried about all of these issues because none of them matter? What makes them moral or immoral? It's the scripture that frames it for us. When you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're finally able to do the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. You will never love your neighbor as yourself until you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because at your core, at my core, what we are is weak and frail and flawed. And we're selfish. And and when we're selfish, we ignore the cries of the helpless. When we're selfish, we don't worry about anyone else. We use up people for our own gain. We overlook people. We don't have compassion for people. We make a joke about them because they don't have what we have compared to us. That's what we are when we're selfish, when we're weak and we're flawed. Never stop to consider the interest of others. Many years ago at this church, we decided that we wanted to be a church that represented this community. This community that we live in, it's a vast community. It's a different community than it was even 10 years ago. It's a beautiful community filled with beautiful people from beautiful countries that God has created. It's a wonderful place. And we established it like this. We don't care who comes, we just care that lost people come. That's what we want to see. We want to have a chance to introduce people to the living Lord Jesus Christ because we believe that as we love God, we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, And that means sharing with them that while they are dead in their trespasses and sin, there is a redeemer whose name is Jesus Christ the Lord and he came and died on the cross for their sins, for my sins, for the sins of the world. And as he died on the cross, his blood was spilled to cover their sins. And as they enter right relationship with him, they experience and receive new life. It's only new life that addresses these issues. It's the only way you can do it. So we have to look at the world, understanding that loving God with all of our heart makes us compassionate with others. We have to be wise and understanding. We have to lead the way as we wrestle with these things intellectually. To love him with all of our heart means that we have this compassion. To love him with all of our mind means that we wrestle with these things from the Christian point of view. 
It doesn't mean that we accept everything that we're being told from society. We still have to make judgments about things that are righteous and unrighteous. But it means that we look at these things and we're not afraid to say this is sin, this is wrong, and we stand for the right. We love justice and mercy. We love our neighbor as ourself. When we love the Lord our God with all of our strength, when we pour that out, all of a sudden it makes others, or excuse me, loving others easier because we're loving them like Jesus has loved them. And David found his way through this tough season of his life as he worshiped the Lord. I want you to listen to what he said back in Psalm 73, verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but my God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good, and I've made the Lord my God, my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. Don't let the culture shape your response. Let it be shaped by the word of God. As you look at these things, understand that the word of God speaks to all of these things. And as believers, when we find those friction points in our lives, we have to do some self-examination. You don't need me to tell you what I've already told you today. You don't need me to tell you that racism is wrong. You don't need me to tell you to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know these things. What we have to do is be reminded again and again to do those things. So as believers this morning, we come before the Lord and we ask him to examine our hearts. We ask him to look at our minds to see if there are those places in our minds where our feet are slipping. I love that David said, I almost slipped. I was close. I was frustrated enough. I was close. I was about to go down a dark path and yet God redeemed me. When I came to worship, God redeemed me. He was at my right hand. He guided me, he said. I love that. Let Jesus, let the Father, let the Holy Spirit guide you this week. Be wise in understanding. Let let him guide you during these times as you take his counsel. Let his counsel be about you. And for the church, I would admonish us to think about something that James tells us. Let everyone be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Let us be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I want you to bow your heads with me and pray right now. Could it be today that you've been frustrated that you've been angry about something? Could it be that as you've examined your heart today, you're finding things that this has brought back up from a time period a long time ago that you thought were buried and maybe you just need to go before the Lord and ask the Lord to work in your life today. Maybe you're like me, you look at society and you just feel like it's not getting better. You feel like your feet almost slipped. Aren't you grateful for the word of God today 
that calls us back. It centers us again. It lifts our gaze. Church, I challenge us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, to love our neighbor as ourself, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry this week. Because that's the only way that this society is going to change is if we have the opportunity through relationship to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people so that their hearts are changed. Let's ask God to make that so. Father, this week, help us as we try to serve you. We want to obey your word, Lord. We believe your word has the answer for everything we're looking at. Father, we reject sin. We ask for justice. We ask for your strength, Lord, as we battle a pandemic and we're frustrated in that. We ask for your strength, Lord, as as our hearts break for the things that are going on in our country right now. And we ask you, God, to move on this place. Would you move in our country, Lord? Would you call us back to repentance? Would you change the hearts, Lord? Lord, forgive us for our wickedness. We ask you, God, to move, to make all things right. And Lord, we know that that will be true in heaven, but we ask for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven today. And for us as believers, Lord, help us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry as we navigate these times. Lord, form our character into character that's pleasing to you as we abide in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wanna remind you that you'll be hearing from us some more this week. Uh, If we can, we'll be here on the 14th. If we can't, we'll look to the 21st. We're just gonna keep rolling with the punches as they come and and keep trusting the Lord in the middle of all of it. Don't lose hope this this week. Lift up your eyes. Get before the Lord. Stop watching the stuff all the time that would bring you down. Look to the Lord. Love justice. Love mercy. Go and do that. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. God bless you.